0: This is Jaleesa with Why We Do What We Do. I know I'm not your typical host, but I am the host of the Be Better podcast for conversations to make better life choices and a board-certified behavior analyst, and so happy to be a guest on this show.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Nalalee Saban. I am also a board-certified behavior analyst, and I'm intrigued in the conversation we're about to have as
2: well. This is Abraham, regular host, and I have invited Jalisa and Mawili to come on and just talk about their experiences in this area and to provide anything they'd like to say about I guess anti racism, racism, your experiences being African American, um, being women, anything related to your experiences in those areas, please, you know, the floor is yours.
0: All right. So I I'm really, really, it's weird to say I'm excited to talk about anti-racism, but I mean that's (laughs) the truth. I'm of a strange caliber. Like these conversations I feel like are very much needed and not having this kind of undertone of like, oh, I'm scared of what I'm gonna say. And I don't wanna I don't wanna embarrass anybody. It's all right (laughs) because nine times out of ten, if you don't know something, you're probably going to say something wrong. And the whole point of learning is getting that correction. And so when it comes to anti-racism in this conversation, I guess I need to give the people a little bit of a background of who I am and kind of what it's been like, because there's been this history within the States at least, but I know it's not limited to the United States of just kind of painting Black people as a monolith. And we are all the same. The images on television usually tend to show you the same. Me as a Black woman, I should be speaking a little bit differently than how I sound to some, of some people right now. I should be popping my lips. I should be doing all types of things that have been characterized. And it's just a common depiction of ghetto and, and uneducated and financially disenfranchised being the Black image and that's not true. And it's just kind of a one way that our society is built within the systemic racism to keep those images flowing and where you got to work really, really hard to see, you know, other depictions of how Black people are. I grew up middle class to military family. Like I'm blessed and fortunate to not have to have wanted for much. And my parents were like Officers in the in the military, and so they were master sergeants, senior master sergeants. My sister's currently a major. I'm the rogue one that did not go into the military, but everybody else <laughs> did. And so, you know, growing up in suburbia, growing up being one of the few black families in the neighborhood, it gave me a different perspective of the world. And those things continued to enhance as I got older and left kind of that safety, security, military town bubble. Where yes, we're used to seeing a lot of different people come in and out because it's a military town, but For the most part, those that stay, it's still not overwhelmingly diverse. It's still left a lot of room for just small populations. And so that's me. Mauli, what about you?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you started the conversation with a little bit about our personal history and why I think that's important is because when we come to the space, we're coming with our entire experiences behind us. And so our experiences obviously differ greatly, which indicates or or really impacts how we present in the space. Um, Any space, which is the huge part of being culturally responsive is understanding how people arrive to a particular space. I have a lot to say, so I'm trying to figure out which part to start with (laughs) to make sure it makes the most sense. I am a native of Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia, have lived there majority of my life. I lived a significant time in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, so I know that area very well but Philadelphia is where I call home. Both of my parents are West African immigrants. So racially identify as Black. There's this other cultural piece where I am Black and I have lived the life of a Black person in the United States, but I also have this other intersecting piece of my ethnicity, which is Tobolese, because of where both my parents come from. And so that definitely shapes how I engage in these conversations and has shaped my journey to becoming anti-racist individual. And so I I totally agree with you when you talk about this not using a monolithic view frame of Black people, because when you do have that monolithic view, I also do not fit into that narrative because of that ethnicity piece.
0: Yeah. And let's see, I, I too am trying to make sure all of my words come out in coherent form, but having those different intersecting pieces of our development I know for me, I've kind of learned how to navigate these different spaces in a way that, I mean, ultimately is best suited for my survival. And and I kind of reference code switching in that aspect because I think sometimes it's misunderstood. as like, oh, you know, you're changing who you are to fit into this space, but it's not necessarily that. It's more so, uh, I can't help but describe things behaviorally, but it's more so I am communicating in a way that I know my listeners will understand. And so when I am, I remember being like, so I'm from Louisiana and I'm currently in Texas. And so Southern country. Even after my parents, you know, retired, that's where they were from. We the, Louisiana was very much in my body, and so it would be when I would visit my country cousins <laughs> on my daddy's side of town. My mom would just cringe because my voice and my drawl, and I just continued to to speak in the way that my listeners and what I was hearing was, and it didn't help that I was small. And so, yes, you just kind of imitate all the things that you hear going around. But even taking that out of the context of just within my family unit, it would be when I'm around white people at school. They didn't necessarily know all the references to the songs and the little bits of slang that I would say around my cousins or I would say with my family. And so if I wanted to make friends, I know it's like, okay, well, I can't talk about what happened the other day at the whoop-de-woo. I have to speak about something that we all finding that kind of common interest and speaking in a way that I can be understood. And it's even in the navigating a professional space, kind of taking it out of grade school, knowing that there is a, this kind of stereotype threat of at least I carry in terms of, okay, well, I don't want them to think that I'm too loud. Even though I am really loud, I get loud and it's just a natural decibel level reading, but I don't want anybody else to think that loud because that's stereotype of black women that we're all loud and, and love to talk a lot. And so I would realize I'm quieting myself. I am making sure that my volume, like being very conscious of how excited I get, even if I'm very excited and it takes even in that space in the the mental strain of therapy and figuring out like, okay, well, you know, what can I do? Can't I do? Why do I feel this way? And it just all comes from just in my development, the little jabs and comments, little things like, what, what did you say? I don't know what that is. What? And I swear I'm speaking English. And so over time you just kind of shape to where I can either not talk to anybody Or I can just kind of subtly mold the way things come out. I don't know if that made sense, but that's kind of how I've navigated these spaces and essentially to be in a position where I am, where I'm also currently in a doctoral program. And again, one of few Black people in this program, it's an overwhelming feeling to be cautious because I don't know how other people will perceive me.
1: Yeah, that's the balance that we all have to go through as Black people in, in the United States. I think with code switching, there's this underlying piece that we often have to acknowledge about where, where's the historical context, and then for us individually, why are we engaging in this particular practice? And so a friend and I, she's Ghanaian, I'm Togolese, and we often joke and say we learned how to code switch at two. Because when your parents are from another nation than the nation you're currently growing up in, there's this obvious difference from what you do at home and what you do outside. And you learn really quick. like, oh, this is different, right? And so there's just pieces where, like you mentioned, being able to be understood. So I'm from Philadelphia. We say John a lot. But when I'm speaking to people who are not from Philadelphia, I'm not going to say John I'm not going to say yummy. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say drawing. Not because I don't think those, those words are good words. It's just you may not understand it. And then I have to go into a whole background like, oh, what does that mean? Then I have to explain it. Sometimes people will catch me say it by accident. But typically, I just don't say it to other people. So that's just more being understood. But there's this other piece about code switching where it's, are you assimilating to whiteness? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the bigger question when people talk about, I'm not cold switching anymore. I'm not engaging in this practice because it's the annihilation of my Blackness. And so if, if some of the practices that you're engaging in go beyond just making sure that the, the language you use is understood by the general population, what are you really doing and what's the premise behind it? Is it truly anti-Black sentiment or is it just so you can be understood? I mean, obviously there's just... Little differences that we don't use in particular spaces because we shift and mold to different environments. That's just natural behavior. You're a behavior analyst. <laughs> <I don't laughs> There's some stimulus control here. But, <laughs> but are you going beyond that step is always the question. And if you are, why? And that's the self-reflection piece. It's not something that other people can critique you on and try to tell you what you should be doing. Because that's your own self-reflection
0: hmm And it, I mean, it it definitely takes, I'm a huge advocate of therapy and mental health. I mean, go figure. But I just I I really feel like everyone, every single one. I had a professor ask me, like, well, when do you know that you need therapy? And I'm like, well, the baseline is you do, because to say that you don't need therapy is to say, like, I'm I'm perfect. My mental health is sound. I don't ever get worried, anxious, anxiety, or anything about anything. And that is a bold faced lie. And so when like learning to cope with like, well, how do I navigate these spaces? And even my own like existential blackness crisis because black was defined by the media that I showed, I had to then dig deeper of to like, okay, well, what are the differences between what I see at home to what I see on TV? And then that's why I think kind of as the years go by and we see this, you know, big movement towards really highlighting Black spaces. I mean, you know, thank you again, Abraham, for using this platform to highlight Black voices. And we see more Black stars in movies. We see more Black television. We're seeing a little bit more of a positive representation of Blackness to where I, it gets me excited for the future, but in the same breath, that kind of excitement is quelled when we've got these uprisings. We've got, we, we still are very much dealing with things that my grandmother was dealing with. My grandmother is 82 years young, and she would tell me stories of how people just disappeared. It would be She's going to the store and she runs into her friend. Her friend has not seen her husband in three days and they find him hanging from a tree. Can't call the police because the police probably did it. it. And it's and it's those types of tales that they never made the news. They didn't. There was no hashtags back then. And so now here we are. And yes, growth has happened policies have been put in place. It's not as blatant as literal white robed clansmen coming through and snatching you out your home. But now it's so in your face to where it's the police in uniform that can kneel on someone's neck for eight minutes and 40 seconds. They can burst into the wrong home shoot up two people who are sleeping and never have any charges for murder brought against them. They don't even, you know, I think maybe they get fired, but they're still allowed to practice in that field. Whereas there's no other profession that kind of has that sentiment of like, you know, if you were a doctor and you were just willing, you know, killing all of your patients, you probably wouldn't be allowed to be a doctor anymore, but we don't see that with the police system that has such deep roots in clan history like it's 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 hard truths and pills to swallow and i speak not as someone who is against the police because trust me if someone was breaking into my house i'm calling the police like it's i too want to be protected and believe that they are designed and there is this kind of it's everything is like all on the most idealistic level of they will protect and serve me in my community, and my tax dollars pay for them to help me. But the truth is, is that I live in anxiety at the same time because I know that all those pictures that you may have seen in history books, where there have been broke neck black men, and there's swarms of white people standing around them at these parties, at these at these picnics during lynchings. Many of those members of the crowds were police officials. Many of those members who were doing that were officers that. In daytime drove in the police cars and so there's a distrust there's been a there's just a historical level of distrust for police, and it's important for people to really work on rectifying that and not just getting I feel like overly emotional because of personal attacks and I feel like I'm rambling a little bit now, so I'm going <laughs> to slow it down. but I just I don't even know how we got how we got to this point, but <laughs>
1: you want to jump in. I don't call it rambling. I call it a soapbox.
0: <laughs> ah, thank you, bro I stepped on that soapbox real high.
1: <laughs> and I welcome the soapbox. <laughs> As you were talking, I started thinking about bias and how often racial bias comes into play when we perceive Black people or when we view Black people and how it creates the perceptions that we act on. And how that typically results in harm. And so when we talk about black people being murdered by police officers uh, because of this perceived level of threat and this level of increased level of fear resulting in the black person's death, it extends so far beyond this moment in time and space. It's the history of what it is to be black in the United States. And it's also expands through professions. And so we do know with the medical field, Black people are dying at a high rate at the hands of medical professionals because our pain is not viewed as true pain. Our advocacy and the words we're saying are not heard the same way it's heard from other people. And so when we're crying out for pain, for treatment, for care, whatever you need from a medical profession, you're not getting it because of bias. Then we can talk about, and you you and I are both in the school psychology world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Talk about soapbox. When we talk about educational systems and how there's this overarching system of bias. And when we view children, very, very young children. I mean, we're talking about children as young as three babies because that's how far the data goes is three. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of bias beyond three or below three, but the data starts there, there's this continued overarching piece of of bias. And there has to be some acknowledgement of how we got to the point where we see Blackness, we weaponize it, and then we turn it into a response of, I'm afraid, and then we engage in some very harmful behavior, particularly for the Black person. The the harm is happening to the Black person. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of the situations that happen in news, It was harm that was lethal. It's not simply, oh, you hurt my feeling. No, these people are now dead. Yeah, and
0: it's, I mean, just even getting with going, kind of touching back on that school soapbox, because that's really where I feel like lots of things begin because america has like mandatory free public education lots of the conditionings that we're experiencing happen in school because before then you only knew what you knew you knew your mom your dad your immediate family and all was right with the world you know it's it's a really really beautiful thing looking at the purity of children across all races before they start getting exposed to these more bias practices. And because there some of these biases are implicit, the people who are doing it don't even know that that's what they're modeling in front of their children, but that's what they're seeing. And up until that point, they didn't know. I think, Many of you may have seen like the viral clip of the black boy and the black and the white boy who thought they were twins because they had the same haircut and they were just we're twins and we look alike and our birthdays are the same day. And it was super adorable because they it's like just I don't know. I, I just love working with kids because it's really just the purest faces. And then it's not until they start seeing in school classrooms. Well, you know, nobody wants to sit with me. The teachers are making comments like, oh, you know, do you know what it's like to have clean water? You know, it's kind of like, oh, OK. All right. But because they're small, they don't know these things. There are little snickers that come from it just slowly starts to build. And then in that weaponizing of blackness, I know there's, there are studies that kind of see like children across different races so black children compared to white children are not viewed the same age so black children are usually aged a whole lot more than white children are so you've got that and so it's imagining a five-year-old girl but you think she's as big as a 10-year-old and now she's having a tantrum like five-year-olds do but you call the cops on them and the cops have to take her away and they institutionalize this girl This is a real case that happened in Florida, and it's not because, oh, she was just so dangerous. It was she literally had a tantrum like every single five year old on the face of this planet has. But there was this bias. There was this fear. There was there was something about her that was different compared to if it were another child of European descent that that reaction may not have been as drastic. And and there's so many case reports that show that like they there's the school to prison pipeline is a term and a phrase and a thing because it's so real. I'm in Houston right now. And so I've been looking at the at the statistics and I mean, as early as fifth grade and Mauli, you can correct me if it's different, if you know some national statistics. But I mean, they're getting sent out of the school that means their behaviors or and their problems are just so bad that they can't stay in school and so they get sent to you know the, the the bad school the the juvenile detention center the things that are essentially what i call baby prisons because if you have not visited them they look just like a prison they are walking around in line in their jumpsuits there are these different things in place to where it's very much correctional facility and not a let's help you get the skills that you need so you can reintegrate back into into society, which is very similar to our prison system, where there is not enough things to help those people reintegrate back into society. It's just how can we set you up to come back here? And it breaks my heart because it doesn't have to be that way. And it really is on the onus of our allies, our, our white people, to really kind of sit and reflect on their biases and that's what's hard is is because you don't know what you don't know and if you're not willing to kind of do that work of again therapy really helps because that way you can take away the bias of other people talking to you you know if i am speaking directly to one person you might get upset and you're just saying that because blah 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 whereas your therapist is a completely neutral party that can really tell you about yourself and help you dig deeper. So, okay, that might be my own second to last plug for therapy during this time. <laughs> if y'all don't know, I'm, if you can't do anything, please find a therapist. There's there's so many things online you can talk to. Okay, I promise, let me get back on topic. <laughs> but, and I said that because for the most part, unless you live in a predominantly black area, many, many students don't see black teachers. They don't, I and i've been in school a very long time cuz i'm still in school i have only had one black teacher i remember her like it's yesterday she was my freshman english teacher that's it that's all i got exposed to so before then it was teachers that thought i was being loud and it wasn't me even talking it was teachers that would flat out ignore me and i'm smart y'all like i it's not like i wasn't saying the answers correctly i remember being in the front because I have an astigmatism, so I need to sit close to the classroom so I can see what they're writing. Raising my hand to answer the question. And this woman, I won't say her name because I still remember it. We were in high school. And she's said, like, does anyone have any questions? My melanated arm is b- 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 waving. Hey, it's me. I got a question. Anyone? Anyone? Does it, okay, so sing. another student had to say, Miss so-and-so. Jaleesa has a question, only then did she acknowledge my presence and and let me have the space to answer, to ask my question, to give me the answer. And it's those things, again, it's like she wasn't being racist in the sense that people think racist is. But she was definitely doing something that was not treating me as an equal. And I didn't have the language for it then, but I knew, I was like, I don't like you. I was like, I don't, because I can see that you ignored me. I can, I literally turned to my friend. I was like, am I invisible? Do I exist? Because it got to that point where it was a clear erasure of my presence for no known reason to me other than. The obvious ones that I can see of that I look different than the rest of my peers in class and all of the black kids sat on one side. And so you just lumped me into whomever it was that you thought was a troublemaker because we all became the troublemakers. And so kind of with this, I think it's important for there to be a clear stance about being anti-racist because those subtleties, those biases, those little behaviors that you do that you don't realize that you do, then if somebody would have called around and be like, you know, you were kind of being a little racist because you didn't acknowledge, why didn't you answer Lisa? Now you're going to get upset and flustered. It's like, no, it's important for for people of color to know if you're going to be our ally, if we can trust you, if we can be around you, I would really like to know that you consider me as a human being and you are completely against it. It's not, it's not enough to be like, oh, that's so terrible. And then you were like, well, it's not in my neighborhood. You know, it's not around me. It's not affecting me. It's, no, this is a problem. And how can I make these steps to not profit or benefit off of this and to not directly impact it as well?
1: Yeah, you brought up a, a lot of important pieces that I wanted to, to reflect on. So you talked about the, the school to prison pipeline. And there is a lot of data more recently than before that talks about how this pipeline, there's two sets of data. One starts in preschool, one starts at cradle. So there's cradle to prison pipeline, and then there's the preschool to prison pipeline. I'll talk about the preschool to prison only because I know that data the best. But as early as three and four years old, Black children particularly are overly disciplined and harshly disciplined in school about 20% of the population, nearly 50% of outside of school suspension. And then even when we talk about suspension or disciplinary actions within schools, it doesn't only extend to suspension, it's including all exclusionary practices. So that includes out-of-school suspension, expulsion. I mean, expulsion for preschoolers is very high. It's actually higher than it is for any other grade from K to 12 blows my mind.
2: Yeah. I actually <laughs> had a tried. friend.
1: <laughs> I actually had a friend. He was expelled from, I think, four preschools. His dad was telling me. He didn't use the word expelled. He was like, oh, yeah, let's just say his name is, is uh, I don't know, Boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Boy was kicked out of four preschools. And I was like, that's a crisis. <laughs> I know all this data, right? And I I talk about, but when we look at children, it's it's included suspension, expulsion, any type of removal from the class. And it's classified as exclusionary actions. And all of these exclusionary actions is included in the preschool to prison pipeline. And so it is starting as young as age three. Now we say age three, because that's the data we have not because we know definitely that's where it starts. And we know that data because the federal funding for Head Start programs. And so there's a study by Walter Gilliam that's really profound around this preschool to prison pipeline. And it looks at particularly bias. And so when we talk about the impact of bias on children, there's this piece about what's constituting the removal from the state. And his study finds that when teachers, educators in the space are asked to identify students who are displaying some type of problem behavior, the teachers who were in the study more often viewed and observed Black children. And so just in simple terms, someone tells you, okay, I want you to tell me when someone acts out or misbehaves, or you know, does something that's not supposed to be happening. And then you go directly and look at the Black children. That's a level of bias. But individuals who are the participants of the study did not know that's what was being measured. They thought they were just there to observe problem behavior. And so using an eye tracking system, they were able to measure the tracking of the eyes of the individuals in the study. And so we do see that even when a behavior is not happening, the adults in the study identify that behavior was happening, and particularly with Black children. So I often like to say it's not a problem of Black children's behavior, it's a problem of Black children's existence. Just existing in spaces with Black skin is seen as deviant behavior. And that's why we have this huge problem around over-discipline and inappropriate discipline of Black children in schools. Throughout the educational continuum. And then we can even, like you mentioned, being in a graduate school program, expand this out into the educational continuum of higher ed and how there's a lot of disparities throughout that program as well. So that's one piece I did want to reflect on. There's this other piece that starts to come to the forefront during the Brown versus Board of Education litigation that legally integrated schools. And Mimi Clark, Dr. Mamie Clark, I've always been saying her name wrong. I need to stop doing that. But Dr. Mamie Clark talked about how are children viewing themselves? And so there's this very famous study that most people do know about. And it, it was recreated not too long ago and found the same,
2: mm-hmm.
1: same results. But what it shows is that there's this view of from Black children of themselves that connects to a lot of beliefs that are detrimental. Mm -hmm. And there's also studies and data that talks about how these negative attributes are attached as early as three years old. And so when we think about small children, I mean, three years old, like you said, they're, they're babies. They're already developing this sense of negativity somewhat, not because of innately who they are, because they're beautifully made. But because of how we socialize individuals in this country, Mm -hmm. we're all socialized under this aura of white supremacy. And the resulting factor of this aura of white supremacy is that Black children do not see themselves in the way they are truly, who they truly are.
0: Yeah. I mean, you definitely hit lots of nails there. And when it comes to kind of just this, I want to unpack white supremacy because I know that just it can ruffle a lot of people up, just not really understanding what is meant by that phrase. And again, it's always like a very common connotation with the KKK. And the KKK is, is just this terroristic group that is so massively attached to white supremacy and racism. But I'm here to tell y'all now that that's not the only kind of manifestation of white supremacy and racism. White supremacy, it simply means that you believe that something or someone is superior compared to others strictly for their complexion and their complexion being as close to whiteness as possible. And it's one of those things because white supremacy is global, just like anti-blackness is global. Because just kind of under that historical context, European colonizers went everywhere that the brown and black people were. So if you go and you're taking over these countries and you're you're doing these war tactics of literally breaking down people's cultures and you're only putting your signs of beauty, you're telling them that their ways are impure, you're doing all of these things to really crush that. And, and I'm saying you're in terms of the historical context and not for individuals that are specifically listening, but in the reality of it, you profit and benefited from those if you are a white person. And so existing within a system that thrives off of racism and white supremacy, you fail to see how harmful it is to other people who are not white. And when you said the things of like, you know how how we perceive ourselves, like I remember being a young girl and I wanted my hair long and straight. I wanted my hair long and straight. Oh, I didn't think my, I, I was, everybody else had long and straight hair. and I just wanted my ponytail to swing. Like, I just remember begging for a way for my ponytail to swing because it didn't. My hair just stayed in the air. And it was always a source of interest at slumber parties that the few that I got invited to of white people when I was a child. Until I did, I got my hair chemically straightened. And you'll see a lot of this process because it was all my Barbies, all my things, like even though I was getting the black Barbies, the black Barbie's hair was still straight. And so it's just, I I applaud the Barbie company and Mattel just kind of through their growth through the years, because now you're seeing all different shades of Barbies, all different textures of hairs of Barbies, different disabilities, different sizes, like those things have to be represented because it's not just It's not just one way and kids pick up on that. Kids pick up on, I don't see anybody else that looks like me, whose hair looks like me. Nobody has to worry about wearing a do-rag or a bonnet or tying down where I go. And now I'm embarrassed because my bedtime routine is a whole lot longer than Susie's who just gets to lay in bed and tousle her hair and shake it out in the morning and go. It's those little things that we fail to realize in comments like, I like your hair a lot better when it's straight. That is something that you didn't realize was racist, but it's racist. And it's a matter of like, well, why? Why do I like your hair better when it's straight and not the way it grows out of your scalp? Like my hair grows out of my scalp. Oh, it's because it's different than mine. Oh, it's because I was believed and I was raised to believe that only straight hair is beautiful. Only blonde hair is beautiful. To have blonde hair and blue eyes means you are the most beautiful because let's be honest, even within white culture, European culture, there are those standards that get you as close to this idealistic version of whiteness that even so many white people don't possess. And so it's crazy how white supremacy just impacts and affects in so many different ways, but it does come down hardest on those who are not white and specifically black people, because our skin is the darkest. And Mawuli, you said something else that I wanted to show when you were like where it's a Black existence problem. I think that can definitely be highlighted. Also, giving more examples outside of school. If you all remember Trayvon Martin in his case of he's just walking home from the store with some candy and some tea. He was not doing anything that was problematic that no other child who went to go get some snacks in the neighborhood did. But simply because he existed in a space where this man who is awful felt upon himself that he didn't belong, felt upon himself that he he should not have existed there. That his murder was, and then also the trial, just all of the things that enrage people, that the reason why there are riots still happening right now is because those systems have not changed. There there has not really been a massive impact of, why do you think a Black family does not belong in a very nice, clean, HOA-protected neighborhood? Why do you think that it is odd when, when there's another person of color there it's it's those questions that you've got to ask because didn't I work hard and buy this get this money and buy this house and live there? And if my family wants to come over, they can come over and we have cookouts. And yes, there's going to be an influx of othered people only because you the community is not a majority of Black people. And it's also dispelling this notion that, again, Black people are just inherently ghetto and we can only live in the ghetto and our houses got to be broke down. Or when they move in, it's like, oh there goes the neighborhood, which historically, again, white flight is a real thing. It's when too many, when it's like, okay, we're trying to balance out and make it a more diverse community. Now everyone else moves away. And white flight, meaning once desegregation happened and Black people were allowed to go to these schools that white people went to, and they were allowed to live in these neighborhoods, white people just moved to a different neighborhood. And then certain policies kind of came along where districts and zones and lines kind of got reformatted. So then again, it seems to be a predominantly black area again, and not this integrated. We never really integrated. We just desegregated. And I feel like the difference is, is that because by law, we were mandated that you can't tell me I can't come here anymore. But they're still very much the actions are showing of a large groups of white people is they don't want to live. You don't want your neighbor to be black. You don't want to be around to even have the opportunity to see just black people on a regular day-to-day basis doing regular basic things like Mowing their lawn, <laughs> like doing doing just simple stuff. And if you don't ever have to see it, then you don't ever have to be exposed to anything different than what your status quo is of what you were told. Of oh, this is how I see them. I see them on the news getting arrested. I see them on these reality shows fighting each other. You don't get to see just the boy playing on his basketball hoop and his dad come out and shoot a couple of, of hoops with him and then go back inside, or the mom bringing out some lemonade or some sweets. You don't get to see those. Regular, degular, basic, innocuous activities. And that's what we need more exposure to. We need more exposure to just mundane Black people. There's like this thing of we we live on two extremes. Black people are either ghetto or we are excellent. Like we're never just regular. And white people just get to be regular. And I feel like if we got to see just more regular, dug funny, just we need more exposure to that. And, and, okay, I'm gonna hop back off this soapbox because I realized I got (laughs) on one (laughs) again. (laughs) So, I I mean, essentially though, I feel like white people need more exposure to just norm. I don't like the word normal. We need more exposure to the average family, the, the middle-class black family that isn't, you know, well, the mom has five degrees and the, the dad is an officer here and the president of this. It's it's no, she works, you know, at the post office and the dad drives 18 wheelers and they've just been living in this neighborhood for 15 years. And because I think with that conditioning, we'll start to kind of chip away at some of the, we'll, we'll we'll I mean, we're chipping away at the racist conditioning that we've had. We need to kind of recondition ourselves, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. We do need More diverse narratives around Black people in multiple aspects because, as we talked about earlier, Black people cross continents, cross communities, different ethnicity, different gender expressions like, there's just a wide wealth of diversity within Black people, just like there is within all the other cultural groups in this country. There's this concern I have with the way we discuss particular aspects of people's lives. And so I'm I'm thinking largely of currently we're in a pandemic and this pandemic has widened the wealth gap very quickly, particularly the race gap, but also the general wealth gap, racial wealth gap one moreover the entire wealth gap throughout the country. And there's this, idea that we all have and and how we've been socialized under this premise of capitalism that funds racism where we demonize particular groups of people and so when people are in poverty they're unacceptable when people have mental health differences they're unacceptable when people have different abilities whether it's physical or not they're villainized when people do not fit in a gender so all of these different components We look at these people as not holistic beings and not people who deserve the the ability to exist. And so that adds into this other layer of intersectional bias. Because we already have, we have wars on immigrants. We have war on people in poverty and and people who are experiencing homelessness. We've been very disrespectful and harmful to people with different abilities, whether it's people who have a mental health disability people who have different physical abilities, or the deaf community, like all of these different communities we've done a lot of harm to. That's just general. But then you add on this extra layer and intersect it with race and ethnicity, and then it really becomes a huge problem. And so I struggle with the inability to welcome the perspective, the narrative, the stories of people who come from various components of the economic spectrum various components of the gender spectrum, various components of the educational continuum, because it's almost as if we have this belief that people have to start to assimilate, which is another form of racism. You must assimilate as much as possible and be as close to what we consider whiteness to be acceptable. And the more you deviate from the framework of whiteness, the more you are essentially criminalized in this country and so it doesn't allow for space for diversity within many of the areas of social demographics in this country i hope that all made sense it made sense to me <laughs> yes yes it it does because we our country it's always i mean okay i'm gonna take us
0: to history class just not in the in the we're gonna go through all of the country's development but just in thinking about what we were taught about history. And we were taught that America is land of the free and home of the brave. And that, you know, our founding fathers were fighting for their freedom against the the puritanical, you know, oppression of Britain. And they, woo American Revolution, Fourth of July. Like, we we were taught these things. And I remember learning these things. But then it would kind of like be this little bit of, the shadow that the elephant in the room that was never really touched on was just how deeply, you know, during that time, I mean, black people weren't people. (laughs) It was during all of that time while we're talking about the constitution and all men are created equal in that phrase, all men are created equal. The founding fathers literally like should have put an asterisk at the bottom of their long document was like excluding Black people, Native Americans, women, you kind of get a pass only if you're married to one of us. And, you know, it just it was not all inclusive. And I think that kind of using that term without understanding, like, okay, well, that was that was history. Like during that time, it says in our documents that black people were chattel. We were three fifths a person. We weren't even a whole person. I don't know what the other two fifths were, but we were three fifths of it. And so Keeping that in mind of that is our starting point. That is our baseline. That is our indoctrine. That is in our documents that are still preserved in our capitals and it, it, to this day. And then you now jump forward through history, not really touching on how other people of color have impacted the development of this country. It's more so it's very, very whitewashed history of, you know, yes. And then, you know, this happened or all of these inventions that I learned that came from black people that I never learned about in school. Like all of these movements within beyond Martin Luther King, I didn't learn about of event unless it was from my family or from my church. And so I know if I wasn't getting exposed to it in school, my white friends weren't getting exposed to it in school. So they don't know, they don't know these things. So then now we take it into 2020 where we've got these statements, we're, we're declaring Black Lives Matter. We are just making a sentence that we learned again in grade school, a declarative statement, if you will, that Black Lives Matter with a period at the end. But somehow it gets flipped around to we got to say all lives matter, too, because we're we're talking about everyone. Well, I get really turned off because, again, all doesn't mean what all what we tell ourselves all means, because in our documents, when it said all men are created equal, it was not including. It was definitely not the word that we are like all means everything that is around it. It doesn't mean that. I think we need to rewrite the definition of all because it's never meant that. And so until you explicitly state what you mean when you say all, which means you need to say, if you just feel in your heart that you've got to say all lives matter, you need to also follow it up with this includes Black lives. This includes trans lives. This includes women's lives. This includes anyone who has a disability's lives. Like You've got to be specific because it never meant that. And in school, it never got down into the nuances of that. And so it really takes you having to be at a point where you can reflect on like, man, what were we learning? What were we learning? We learned about Thomas Jefferson, but we and all the things that Thomas Jefferson did, but we never learned about all of the children he sold because he was raping black women on on like his his property. We we weren't learning about those atrocities where then now you have everyone's very upset because they're finding out that, you know, Jeffrey Epstein was was sex trafficking and all these things like our founding fathers were doing the same thing. And it's only until we can really really pull back the curtains and, and look at all of the ugliness that, that America has in this pretense of this beautiful ideology. Like the things where the founding fathers messed up is that they gave a fantastic ideology. They sold us this dream of freedom that we constantly get a chance to fight for. And that's why we're still fighting for it. But this time, I feel like in this wave where All of you who are listening now, you saw the title said anti-racism. You could skip it. You could have been like, I don't want to listen to this, but you chose to listen to it. And so I definitely give you kudos if you've made it this far, because it's been some things that you've had to think with and resonate about, but in this moment, it's not the civil rights movement of 1950s that we learned about. And, oh, there was a bus boycott. And then, you know, they marched across a bridge. And then, you know, the rights were passed and Blacks were freed and Jim Crow was gone. Yay. It wasn't that. Like, I was, you know, two, I think two weeks ago, I learned that the bridge that they marched across in Selma, Alabama, Alabama was named after a grand Klansman. Like, what? What? No, you don't know that. You're just like, oh, it's, it's this distinguished man of our town. Your distinguished man of your town sucked and he got a bridge for it. So it's kind of like <laughs> you got to separate that out and, and, and really look at everything, all of the pieces. And so if you're wondering, you know, what can I do after this? Like I've learned about anti-racism and I can do things like what are your next steps towards anti-racism?
1: Jaleesa, I did want to mention one thing about the All Lives Matter component yes. um, and why it is a concern and why Black people are frustrated when it's said, because there's lots of evidence. We're us, We like the data. And so there's, Bring on the data. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's mounds of data that echo or that shows Black lives do not matter, traditionally, in this country and globally. Mm -hmm. And so it's a response to what has historically been happening. Like you mentioned, if you're going to say in your legal document that black individuals are considered partial of a person, then you are saying black lives do not matter. If you at any will can kill a black person for any type of accusation without consequence, well, there's always a consequence, without, without <laughs> a, a trial, trial, without of the trial of their peers and not well, a no, trial. Not <laughs> but you as as a person who removes the life of a black person for this accusation, mm-hmm. you don't face a legal ramification or consequence. Mm-hmm. Then that indicates there's that this black life doesn't matter. And so the response really is, wait, 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 wait. Black people are being killed. Their life is being removed. We're saying their lives matter. It is not a removal of all of the lives of other people. It is just a a response to the behavior that is signaling that our lives do not matter. Mm -hmm. If we truly look at many of the movements that have occurred prior to the the current Black Lives movement, All of these movements have not only been for the advancement and liberation of Black people, but for the advancement and liberation of all people. And so to say Black Lives Matter to a certain degree innately means everyone matters. But right now we're talking about Black people because the data shows that their lives aren't being supported. And so when we look at people, the disability movement, there was work from the Black Panther movement because they felt... We're fighting for black people we're fighting for everybody and you are fighting for people with disabilities how can we support you? We know that mm-hmm. even now recently as, as recent as June there people are still benefiting from the work done during the Civil Rights movement and the Civil Rights Act and it's not only black people who are benefiting it's a lot of people even immigrants as a person whose parents are immigrants, there are a lot of benefits that we were able to civil rights that we were able to obtain through the fights of Black people historically in this country. And so when we look at our history and the movements that have taken place, they have never been, to be pro-Black or to be for the advancement of Black, has never been anti-White, which is what the narrative has been created. Mm -hmm. It has been for the advancement of everyone. But right now we need to talk about Black people because they're just suffering so much.
0: Yeah. And as you were talking, it made me think also, because you're absolutely right, other groups have benefited from the civil rights movement, from the efforts of African-Americans really fighting for their piece of the American dream. And I wanted to touch on the fact that Just because you may be a person of color, so say you are of Asian descent, you are Hispanic or a part of the Latinx community, you are anything other than white and also not black, you too can also be racist. It isn't an exclusionary part of like, because you are, if you have taken too much into assimilating into whiteness and you've removed yourself and you you kind of start to project some of the same things that, I mean, we all get exposed to. And- it's a piece of not also knowing the history of how much black people have helped your families of if you're a families of immigrants really thrive here. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about how it was the birthday of I wish I could remember the young lady's name. I want to say her name was Lakeisha. But it was in the 90s. I think she would have been 40, but when she was 15 years old, she was leaving a convenience store. Latasha. Latasha. Thank you for that correction. But she was leaving a convenience store, and the owner, who was Korean American, shot her in the back of the head. And the only consequence that came from him literally murdering a young black girl because it was a woman thank you so much see yep (laughs) the the, the woman (laughs) murdering a young black girl trying to get some juice that day was that she had to pay for the funeral costs and like you said there wasn't real legal consequence for that and so that in addition to the police who were who beat rodney king kind of was the catalyst for the riots in the 90s. And history just continues to repeat itself. Like, it's crazy how much we can look into the past and basically predict the future. Like, I know the trial for George Floyd's killers has not begun yet, but it's one of those things to where if we track behavior and we, you know, graph these things as they come, if there is not a guilty verdict when the whole world saw it, it's not necessarily to say this as a threat of like, oh gosh, it's good, but the behavior that follows is civil unrest because there has been a drastic, blatant example of civil rights violations. And so it's really, really imperative for everyone involved if we want to see this world change, if we want to see our status quo shift from what it has always been literally again since I mean, since every person in my family has been alive, my grandmother should not still have to be nervous for her great grandchildren to go to a party somewhere. Like I shouldn't be clutching my pearls and having to pray super hard at night for my nephew to go have fun when he was in high school in Alabama. And he was one of the only black kids in Alabama. And I've got We've got to do drills. I'm like, hey, buddy, if there's you no know, drugs at the party, what you going to do? Well, I guess I'm going to have to leave. I'm like, yep, that's right. Like you're going to don't, if if a fight breaks out, what you're going to have to do? Well, I guess I'm going to have to leave. Yes, that's right. Because when the cops come, when people call on just this regular house party, high school party that got a little crazy, like all the movies that we get to see it's not going to go down like, you know, some Hollywood dream of like, okay, they get off and they get to record something cool for Instagram. And then, you know, they get scurry off with the warning, like, no, it's going to be him getting singled out because he is black, even if he had nothing to do with it. And so it's just this for my own personal benefit, but for the growth of our society, I'm hoping that everyone kind of looks deeper into how they can dismantle this system because it's possible it's it's not something that has to last forever it's just a matter of being very very conscious of what you're doing and who you're supporting I'm gonna try to not get political, but it's it, it's hard because policy. Like we we've got to make sure that you are selecting people who reflect the policies you want to get changed, and so it's a matter of if there is someone who is vehemently anti-immigrants. Anti-blacks says that clans people or people who have been affiliated with white supremacist groups are fine people. Those are not the the reflections of an anti-racist. Those are reflections of someone who really, really benefits off of the oppression of others. And so if you no longer want to benefit from that system and you would like it to be truly land of the free, home of the brave, equal for everyone, there's got to be very, very conscientious change and who we put into political power not just on a presidential level but in your local government as well because there's just so much i feel like it's so much that could change within the states like we don't have to wait for the federal government to tell us hey that's wrong you could you could just make those changes within your own communities
1: Yeah, talking about takeaways and solutions that people can engage in, I think the big part is removal of this binary good person, bad person, I'm a racist, I'm not a racist narrative, because it traps you in this space where you're attempting to prove you're not racist. And so unfortunately, because of history and how race as a social construct has been developed and used from Europe to the United States, we all really have adapted some of these racist ideas, globally, the entire country. I mean, my parents were born in colonized nations. Like they're, the nation they were born in was colonized by France when they were born. And my parents are not that old. I'm very young, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a global issue, but our work is really analyzing our thoughts in the moments that they're happening and having these self-reflections. Because if your goal is to just prove you're not racist, that's not helpful in removing the harm that's happening to communities. The work of reflecting on on the things you're doing, if we're, we're all behavior analysts, when we're analyzing behavior and we're writing FBAs in schools or we're writing treatment plans or we're developing programs in homes and communities and group settings, are our practices that we're doing culturally responsive and is it grounded in anti-blackness is our treatment plan bringing this child closer to assimilating to whiteness or making them more successful and healthy in their environment where they currently are like there's a lot of questions we currently have to have and really reflecting on what we're doing because it's not about the use of of racial slurs or the physical violence towards black people And other people of color, the indigenous community, it's not those acts that we're only talking about. There's other subtle things that are happening every day, moment to moment, that continue to perpetuate tremendous harm to communities. And so just because of time, my biggest takeaway is self-reflection, continuous, continuous self-critique.
0: Yeah. And if you're struggling with self-reflection, this is my last therapy plug. <laughs> Go to therapy. Go talk to somebody about it. i be like, I just can't reflect. When I look in the mirror, there's no one there. I have a hard time doing it. Go talk to an unbiased person. So that way you can speak freely. If you're if you're still taught up, like, I don't, I don't know, I want to say things and you know, well, you know, I really want to ask these questions. Therapists can really, 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 truly help you with it. Like a licensed mental health professional, not just someone who's read a couple of, you know, therapy blogs, like a true licensed mental health professional. Okay. That's, I promise my last time I'm going to play <laughs>
1: therapy. <laughs> yeah. And, and as professionals, whether we are individuals who, in, who do provide psychotherapy, behavioral analytic therapy, or we teach, like if we're in a space of, individuals, there's this requirement for having some racial literacy. And so Dr. Howard Stevenson from University of Pennsylvania does a lot of work on understanding racial literacy. And so if you you are seeking a counselor, you want to make sure that they understand racial literacy enough to help you understand your racial bias. Because Mm -hmm. there's a science to implicit bias. There's so much work that talks about What implicit bias looks like in the body and in 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 the mind and how it presents itself. I know that's mentalistic, but uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's all
0: right. It's all right because I I am super interested in 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 studying implicit bias. So this is great, Abraham. You you can. (laughs) This is cute.
2: (laughs) I want to be mindful of your time here, and also if if you're willing, I I would like you both to have the last word in this conversation. My specific intention was that you would have the first and last word. And I actually wanted to just take a moment to invite you to, if you would like to continue this conversation, this has been amazing. And I'd love to have you both on to continue to have more discussion about this in the future, if you're open to that idea. And I also just want to say, before I let you close this out, to just say, thank you so much to Lisa Scott, Mouly, Sivan, say your last name correctly? Yes. Okay. For joining us in your, in your thoughts. So I'll, I'll let you guys close out however you'd like. We always like to end on recommendations if you have any literature or, or anything like that, but really and honestly, uh, and however you'd like.
0: Yes, I would, I would love to, you know, thank you so much again for providing this platform. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation because I mean, it's me too. I just I wish more people felt comfortable talking about it. Like it's okay, it's okay. Just like what Willie said, take get away from. If I say this, I'm a racist. If I say this, I'm not a racist. It's just you are a learning, growing person, and there are things that I did ten years ago that I would be mortified if anybody like saw or read or heard or you know knew that I said or did. So it's all a part of being alive and growing and being better. And so. I'll kind of, my last words before I let Maule take her stance is just things that I hope for you all to kind of know is on your journey to being a better ally, on your journey to being anti-racist, make sure that you aren't tokenizing your your black friends that you do have by asking them what what you can do to help. Don't make it their responsibility to educate you. You have to take that initiative on yourself. And don't assume because we talked about how blackness is not a monolith and we talked about how people of various ethnicities and backgrounds do not have the same experiences. So make sure you're getting rid of those assumptions. If you ever find yourself using the terms like, "Well, black people just," stop it right there because Black people don't just anything. It's there's there's nuances and levels to this. And then don't perform this this performative activism, the the whole black squares coming across your social media feed and then nothing else. Like we didn't see anything else from other people. Like you know, we can see your, we can see that. Like We can see that it was just for show. It's not hidden. And so it always makes me question as a black person, are you being genuine? And so if you don't want to come off as disingenuine, make sure that you aren't just trying to do something for a picture, for a photo op, so people can see that you've done something, but start do actually physically getting your body out there. Well, I mean, it's a pandemic, so don't get your body out there without a <laughs> mask, but do something to, to, to really, I mean, writing a letter demanding that Brianna Taylor's murderers go to prison. That's something that I can do and I've done it. And it's great because there's so many different ways that you can send it to where it doesn't even have to get traced back to you if you're worried about retaliation or something, but it's completely legal. Hey, freedom of speech to write a letter and demand that someone get arrested. That committed a crime, like murdering someone in their sleep. So in terms of like things that maybe you can read and educate yourself on, I know I, let's see, I know Marley, you have a book club, so you've got a whole thing. So I'm <laughs> going to reference one that I didn't even get a, a, but why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria is one. It's, it's a thick one in terms of those that if you like reading, this is something for you. But I know there's another book called how to be an anti-racist that has been just, I mean, getting rave reviews, everyone's loving in it and it's straight into to the point. So with that, I really, really hope that you are kind to yourself on this journey and understand that you're going to probably say or do some things wrong in the beginning. And that's okay. That should not stop you from still wanting to do the work. Just think of it like when you learned how to ride a bike, you fell down sometimes, But you got propped right on back up until you got to get to it fluently. So that's what this is. You're strengthening this new muscle, this new part of your brain that you never really had to do because you had the privilege to not. And it's okay. Just take things one day at a time.
1: Okay, that's my thoughts. I agree with you on recommending books. You're right. I have a book club and we're this summer where we are reading How to Be an Anti Racist by Dr. Ibram Kendi. And if you would like to join, definitely it's a free book club and it's open to individuals who are in the mental health or educational field. So we talk about the work that we're doing, how we can integrate the book into our work. And so I think that's a big piece is gaining authentic knowledge, studying, learning, continuing to have conversations and just expanding your framework and your knowledge around these particular topics. I think that's important for everyone. So I, I've talked to a few people recently with the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement protests, who are particularly Black women in spaces where they're feeling unsafe. And so I, I extend an invitation to anyone who's probably maybe on this call. I know the field of ABA is not racially diverse, and so if you're on this podcast or you're listening to it and you feel like you want to talk to someone about maybe a challenge you're having at your workplace, I'm always open to listen to people and kind of talk to them and even strategize a little bit from what the next step can be. You know, we could talk about things like that. I also have a recommended book list that I like to send people. So if, if you're interested in other books you can read, definitely email me and I, I can send that over to you. I love to read.
2: (laughs) I'm reading
1: this book for the second time and I'm like, oh, this is great. It feels like I'm reading it again for the first time. It's awesome. So. All right. Thanks again, you guys, for listening.
0: As I said in the beginning, I am a host of my own podcast called the Be Better Podcast, Conversations to Make Better Life Choices. You can find that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And I really hope that you all got something from this. And so thank you so much for listening. I look forward to having another conversation with you all again. Bye.